This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media podcast about all things in print. This is Brock, and today I am continuing our series reading all the Ian Fleming James Bond works as a companion to our James Bond movie retrospective series over at our movie podcast, Now Playing, as we are reviewing all the James Bond movies leading up to the release of the latest 007 film, Skyfall. Here today at Books and Nachos, I will be reviewing the short story, The Living Daylights. The Living Daylights was originally released in 1962, published in two different magazines that year under a different title. Then it was called Berlin Escape. When Ian Fleming passed away in 1964, The Man with the Golden Gun was released in 1965, eight months later. The short story I'm reviewing today was combined with the never-before-released Octopussy and released in 1966 under the title Octopussy. Later editions would have this volume called Octopussy and the Living Daylights, and later editions of this collection would go on to include Portrait of a Lady, and even later editions would include the short story 007 in New York to this volume. So if you buy this book today, Octopussy and Living Daylights, you will get four James Bond short stories. Much like I did when reading the For Your Eyes Only collection, we will be reviewing all the stories in this short story book over three podcasts. The order we read them is based on the original release date of that individual story. So that means we start with The Living Daylights. The plot should sound familiar to you if you have seen the Bond movie of the same name, as the opening scene of that movie is basically the same story we get here. The story opens with Bond practicing difficult shots at the Century Range, a famous shooting range in England, with this special modified sniper rifle before going to Berlin for his mission. It is nice to see Bond train for a change. He always seems to know how to work every weapon, vehicle, or whatnot he has in the movies. We see the range officer's thoughts and curiosities of who this incredible marksman is and how is he able to get well over 90% accuracy and with such diverse conditions and distances. It's strange that this range officer, with all this theorizing, didn't suspect Bond was a special agent or an assassin or anything. He just was like scratching his head looking for information. So while I enjoyed having Bond train, I did not get that character at all. And it is here where we get our first illustration. There are a handful of illustrations in this story, and it took me aback at first. They look like sketches in a simplistic pointillism style. What's even more odd than the illustrations being here in the first place is that the drawing here is of Bond's sniper rifle. Not Bond holding the rifle at the range, just the gun. It adds nothing to the story. But thankfully, the range officer character and this weird illustration don't get in the way of the story picking up steam and gathering my interest. Like in Thunderball, as Bond drives to the airport from the range, we get a flashback to M giving Bond the assignment. The mission. Agent 272 has managed to get a message out that he is going to cross from East Berlin to West Berlin on one of three nights. The KGB intercepted the same message, and they will have their best sniper, codenamed Trigger, set up to shoot him when he tries to cross. 
Bond's job is to shoot the sniper targeting 272 and allow his crossing. And this scene with M sets up Bond's conflict for the entire story. Bond forces M to state the purpose of the assignment, as he does not like to blatantly commit murder, and he wants M to realize exactly what he is asking. M is cool and distant when stating the assignment, as we see he doesn't like giving these assignments out either. According to Bond, M behaves this way, quote, to take some of the pressure, some of the guilt, off the killer's shoulders. So M does feel the same guilt of sending someone to their death. Bond does not like the assignment. M isn't fond of assigning it, and the chief of staff gives his sentiments to Bond on the job's dirty nature as well. Everyone is acknowledging this job is death, and they need a man like Bond to do it efficiently and cleanly. And Bond has an ethical problem with this. And that makes for a very interesting conundrum. A secret agent who's licensed to kill has a problem with blatantly committing murder. Now, Bond justifies that he is trading a life, 272, for this triggers, telling himself that isn't exactly murder. Killing as a part of the job he seems to be fine with, but when the mission is just that, is just killing. Now, this is quite the contrast to the Bond we read in the story For Your Eyes Only, where he takes on a similar assignment to kill the man behind the death of M's friends. Fleming doesn't seem to miss an opportunity to remind us of Bond's displeasure with this whole thing either. With absolutely no subtlety to it, I started to wonder why Bond is even bothering to go along with the job. If he dislikes it this much, then resign, retire, or perhaps just even say no. Have 006 do it. Once Bond gets to Berlin, we get a bit of a Berlin travelogue as Bond walks the city in the afternoon before he needs to go to work. Zoo railway stations mention local foodstuffs. Bond meets up with Sender, the secret service man on the scene, and Sender gives Bond the lay of the land, shows him the apartment where he'll perch, and the description of how Sender sets up the sniper's nest room for Bond is quite well described. Once again, Fleming shows how talented he is in setting a scene, describing the bed and its level, the immaculate setup on the bed of Bond's supplies, and the executioner's hood and dickie he is to wear when shooting. Sender has one to wear, too. I had quite a vivid picture on my mind of what the hood looked like, but as I turned the page to finish a description of the tools laid on the bed for Bond, we get another simplistic drawing, and this time it's a man in a hood holding binoculars at his side. And though described like an executioner's hood, the figure in the drawing reminds me more of Oogie Boogie from The Nightmare Before Christmas (laughs) rather than an executioner from the Spanish Inquisition. The tension starts to build in the last act of the story, as Bond and Sender hurry up and wait to do the job on the first night. I love the detail we're given as Bond sails in behind the gun, that Bond pops in two sticks of gum as he sets up the scope to shoot, and the area below where he is scoping is a year away from becoming the famous Checkpoint Charlie. Musicians of an all-female orchestra enter the building that Bond is aiming at, and Bond notices the girls. Bond is aiming at a building adjacent that has a darkened block of windows that his opponent's sniper will appear in. Setting the stage from a variety of different angles and viewpoints, my imagination is filling with images left and right of the girls, of the windows, of the rifles. Again, full credit goes to Fleming here for painting such a vivid scene. Of all the women in the group, Bond is drawn to the one holding the cello, the tall, lively one smitten's Bond, distracting him for a moment as she finally enters the building. Bond sees a gun barrel in the window across the street, but no shot can be made as 272 is not coming out this night. It is here we get another unremarkable illustration, this time of the opponent's gun barrel sticking out from a window. In case we don't know what that looks like... But what's notable is that Bond sees it's a submachine gun, not a rifle, which means they want to spray shoot. They really just want to make sure 272 gets dead. So Bond is still distracted by thoughts of this woman with the cello as he prepares to shoot his opposite in the window adjacent. The description of Bond's thoughts here are funny. Quote, why does she have to pick the cello? 
There is something indecent in the idea of this bulbous, ungainly instrument between her splayed thighs. <laughs> Fleming had fun with that. But as the first night was a bust, no 272 or attempt in his life, the book pauses the tension to literally pass time. We get a few paragraphs of Bond brooding over the mission, more wandering around Berlin, and no 272 arrives on the second night. So we quickly go to the third night. Bond just looks at the cello girl but never speaks to her for each of these nights, and the momentum of the story is gone with this interlude. I can understand why Fleming does this, the passage of time, giving Bond time with his thoughts and his conflict about what he's actually doing with the mission, and gives Bond more chances to see the cello player so the ending will pay off better. But it is still a slog to get through to this third night. And I'm not talking a long time page-wise here, folks. It's like a page and a half, but it just kills all of the tension and momentum the story had built up to that point. Yet, once we do get to the third night, the tension does build fast again, and is sustained till the end of the story. As Bond is setting up for the last night, he downs shots of vodka to deal with the pressure of knowing he has to commit a cold murder. That is where Bond's mind is at this point. Sender, being by the book, threatens to tell MI6 about Bond's drinking, and we read Bond wanting that to happen. By this third day, he is entering losing the 00 number as an actual option for him. The finale as 272 makes his run for it. And like in the movie, Bond shoots the butt of Trigger's gun, not Trigger. Trigger turns out to be the female cellist Bond has been admiring. The scene with 272 running, Bond taking aim, the bullets flying, is incredibly entertaining. But Fleming knows just when to go back and forth to different people in the scene and the thought process of Bond in these moments. The scene is very quick and satisfying, Yet, when Bond does notice it is the woman, the very same woman, in fact, that he's been eyeing this whole time, that reveal is not played up enough. I completely thought Fleming would state this with a heavy hand, but instead, you could almost miss it. I like how Sender reacts and how he confronts Bond about why he didn't kill Trigger. Sender says to Bond he will make him answer to his superiors as to why, and then when Bond confesses why, that it was the girl, Sender has no patience for it. A government man all the way, and a sharp contrast to Bond this entire story. Sender's empathy for the situation is non-existent. Given Bond's reputation with women, you can't blame him for chalking this up to Bond's weakness. Bond doesn't beg Sender not to report him either. In fact, Bond's reaction is online with where he is the rest of the story. He hopes it may cost him his double O number. So while I see Sender's point, Bond is a secret agent, and he's trained for this, and she's supposed to do the job as assigned, Bond did get the job done, just without killing. We talk a lot about the coldness of the Bond character over at Now Playing and how it serves him well. Fleming takes a lot of time in this story before this climactic ending to set up Bond's distaste for the mission, showing us a more humane side to James Bond. While I do feel empathy for Bond, in the movie of The Living Daylights, they give him an excuse. They say, I only kill professionals. And that reasoning in the movie really works well. Here, with having Trigger be the best KGB assassin, it really reads more like Bond has lost his edge. He is a spy. He is licensed to kill. And to become a double O, you need a steely nerve and an infinity for this sort of work. We don't see him ever kill flagrantly. He does kill when he has to, sure. So while the end result was favorable, the mission was accomplished, Bond perhaps may lose his job or be demoted. We don't know. The story does not resolve that part of the story. It just ends with Bond hoping he doesn't have to be a double O. Quite a lot to think about for such a straightforward story, and I have to think that I may be overanalyzing this just a little bit. <laughs> I don't find Fleming's writing all that nuanced, and subtlety is not his M.O., so to end the story on this kind of note was surprising. The Living Daylights reads quite quickly and has a satisfying quality to it. There aren't a lot of action beats, but instead we get a character study of James Bond. 
and where he is at this moment. While the ending does work, I am not completely buying into this Bond disobedience. The story itself is well-structured, scene settings are good, objects and environments are well-described, and when the intensity and anticipation kicks in at the end, The Living Daylights is the epitome of a page-turner. Not a perfect book, but I suggest coming to your own conclusions on the story and picking up The Living Daylights when you get the chance. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another James Bond book review. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or go to booksandnachos.com to hear the rest of our Fleming Bond book reviews or other non-James Bond reviews as well. Books and Nachos will return. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon which can be downloaded at potsafeaudio.com Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production copyright 2012 all rights reserved